Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, and 7 through 14. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such things? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord. Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb? Says your God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Thank you, Ray. Good morning. I don't know about you, but Sometimes I look around at this world and what feels like the encroaching darkness around us. And I can wonder sometimes, where are you, God? Where are you at work? Where can I see you in this world? What is your plan to make yourself known? I want to I see you. I want you to be visible. What's your plan to reach into so many broken lives? with the freedom of the gospel. I want to see you at work, Lord. In these next two weeks, we wrap up our two-year study in the book of Isaiah. It's been quite a journey. Isaiah really has the whole Bible story, the whole gospel message written up in its 66 chapters. And here in this last chapter... We'll see his plan for reaching the world with his presence. As we look at this plan, I think we'll see that it's a plan that not many of us would have come up with, probably none of us. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has laid it out for us. So in our passage today, we'll see God's plan for reaching the world. And then we'll look at a warning he gives us and then two encouragements to keep us going in the midst of this dark world. So let's pray together and then dig in. Lord, as we come together as your people this morning around your word, we admit that sometimes the darkness can be overwhelming and we need a vision for what you are doing in us and around us. We need to know your plan more fully. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us see more clearly what your plan is, that your spirit would open our eyes and remove the blinders so that we could embrace 
you and what you're doing in us and around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he lays out the plan, his big plan for reaching the world in these first two verses, and it can be summarized this way. His plan is to live through broken people. (laughs) That's his plan. The Jews, of course, in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day and right up to the present, really have focused on the temple as the place where God dwells on earth. It's in a building, and because there's no temple now, the Jews want to rebuild the temple because they believe that's where God dwells. That's his presence on earth, ultimately. And many Christians have that idea as well. It's this thinking that if we have the temple, we're okay. And there can be a great frustration today because we're not able to rebuild the temple. But God says in this first verse, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And where is my place of rest? He says, I am so much bigger than any building. It's not a building that you should look to. It's not a temple. It's not a church building. It's none of that. My plan is so much bigger. Don't miss the bigger picture of what I have planned. I made everything anyway in heaven and earth. So, Very interesting the way Isaiah lays it out. The words of the Lord. What is this house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? He looks around and he says, So where where shall I dwell? That word for rest has this idea, idea of dwelling, of settling in, settling down to live. Where shall I dwell? Where shall I live? God looks around and notice what he says. This is the one to whom I will look. Verse 2, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He looks around and he says, what I've chosen to do is dwell in people. That's where I choose to dwell. God's plan is to plant his life in humanity, to make himself known in the world through us, through people. We are the temple. Very clear in the New Testament. Remember in the Old Testament when God showed up on Mount Sinai, there was smoke and fire. And then when they built the tabernacle and God showed up there, there was the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In the temple, the same way, the cloud descended on the temple. But then what happens in the New Testament? Jesus shows up and the heavens are parted and the spirit descends like a dove, onto Jesus, as if to say, and as to say, this is my dwelling place now. I am dwelling in Jesus. He is the living temple. He is the representative of me on earth. But then what happened to Pentecost? As the believers were gathered after Jesus ascended, they're gathered and suddenly the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descended as in flames of fire to say, this now is my dwelling place. It's those who are gathered in my name, those who trust me, those who walk with me. It's believers that I dwell in. This is my dwelling place on earth. But notice Isaiah makes it clear, it's not just everybody. Everybody's made in the image of God, so they carry a bit of God's image in them. But those in whom he dwells, he gives us three characteristics. Number one, I dwell in those who are humble. 
those who are humble. The word here really means afflicted, those who have gone through tough things in their circumstances. They might be afflicted by others in their lives who have committed abuse against them. Or maybe it's just the difficulties of life, maybe financial struggles, maybe health issues and struggles. If we're honest, we'd have to say all of us are afflicted. All of us have experienced this, but that is who he wants to dwell in. Those who admit and acknowledge that they are humbled, they are afflicted, they are wounded by life. Then he says, and those who are contrite in spirit. Now, I think they used the translation contrite because they didn't really know how to translate it. They, they were a little afraid to translate it directly, but the word actually means crippled, crippled in spirit. This is who I want to rest on, God says. This is my plan to find people who are crippled in spirit. That word crippled is used in 2 Samuel chapter 4 of Mephibosheth. That's easy to say, Mephibosheth, um, who was taken care of by David because he was crippled in his feet, you may recall. 2 Samuel 4.4. It's the same word in Hebrew. And so what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah, is that who I look to is those who are crippled in spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think it's those who limp internally, (laughs) who internally struggle, who are internally broken, who are unable to really handle life all that well, who struggle to make good choices, who are beset by sin that they struggle to deal with, who are bankrupt internally and they know it. God says, that's my plan, to rest and live and dwell upon those who have a hard time in life. What, what do these two together mean? Afflicted and, and bankrupt or crippled in spirit? Well, God looks for people who know they can't handle life on their own, who know life is overwhelming for them, and so they turn to the Lord to depend on Him every minute, to, to make it their goal to depend on Him and trust Him because they know they can't handle life on their own. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit. He's saying the same thing. Those who know they can't handle life, who struggle in life. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 12:9. Let me read that to you because he says it so clearly there. But he, Jesus said to me, When I asked him to take away my thorn in the flesh, Paul writes, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest on me. Sometimes we forget this, but what he's saying, really, every human being is broken. Every one of us is afflicted and crippled in spirit, but... He says, the ones I look to are the ones who admit it and therefore turn to me and depend on me. They cling to me. They depend on me. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I find this very freeing. I don't have to pull it off. I don't have to do everything right. 
God chooses people like us, like me. <laughs> this week, things were just not a big deal at all, but a little tight financially. And I found myself getting really anxious. And I just cried out to the Lord, Lord, why am I so weak? Why is my faith so weak? Why can't I trust you better? Why do I get anxious about so many little things? But God says, be glad you're weak because that forces you to depend on me and my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's my plan to reach the world. And I think this is really important. The implication then for our life together, our community life together, whether it's gathered here on a Sunday morning or whether we're gathered in small groups or whether wherever we are, that we don't have to pretend like we got it together. We should be open and vulnerable and admitting we struggle to trust God and asking for prayer from one another and saying, please pray for me, I'm struggling in this area because we're all on a journey and we're not there yet and we are weak and God knows we're weak and if we admit it and depend on Him, then His life begins to flow through us. So our attitude with one another should be we're just fellow strugglers, we're fellow beggars coming to Him together Thankful for his grace that we know we don't deserve. Inclusive of fellow strugglers who maybe are having a especially hard time. And we embrace them and encourage them and lift them up and pray for them and meet their needs so that we together experience his life. That's God's plan to reach the world, isn't it marvelous? Through weak people like us. And that's how he's chosen to show up on earth. That's how he's made his presence known today. But it isn't just in the weakness, is it? Notice the third characteristic of the person he looks for. He was humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. What does that mean? Well, the word for tremble can be used in the Old Testament in a number of places for terror, for fear. It's at least, at the very least, a deep reverence for God's word to, to come to it and recognizing this is the very words of the creator of the universe, the God who dwells in heaven and made everything and sustains everything, every heartbeat, every breath is a gift from him. That God has spoken to us. And so this word is amazing and powerful. And so I tremble before it. What does that mean? It means that I submit to it. I honor it. I value it. Whatever it says, I honor it. I think too many people today, I find this, is that they struggle with parts of the Bible, right? Well, I like the God of the New Testament. He's really loving and kind and, you know, but sometimes, boy, there's parts in the Old Testament. I, I just can't accept some of that. You know, when God tells Joshua to go kill all the Canaanites, I mean, I just can't accept that kind of God. Well, let me just warn you, if that's your attitude, you are not trembling at the word of God. You are standing over it and judging it and judging God himself and choosing to say, this is the God I want. I want this little narrow God that's just the God I like and makes me comfortable. But I'm going to reject all the other stuff about God. Well, you are not trembling at God's word. If that's your attitude. Now, the word certainly will challenge us, right? Because we are so narrow and, and puny 
and finite in our thinking, we don't see the big picture. So when we come to the word trembling, it should challenge the way we look at life. It should challenge the way we look at God. So do you come to the scriptures and say, Lord, expand my view of God. Expand my view of who you are. And what you will find is that as you understand the bigger picture of God's holiness and his grace and his love, you will see that he's a far more loving God than you ever thought he was. If you allow him to expand your thinking of who he really is and what his truth is all about. So let us be people who tremble at his word, who honor it, submit to it, and let God change our thinking through it. So that's God's plan. He's going to pour his life. He's going to dwell in people who are weak and bankrupt and know they need him, but who are willing to come to his word and say, Lord, I believe what you say and I will submit to it and seek to obey it. But now he goes on in verses three through six to give a warning because this is what can mess up his plan more than anything else in the world. And his warning is this, watch out for empty religion, empty religion. Let me read verse 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. Interesting, as you look at these things, he says, he's really talking about legitimate sacrifices that in the Old Testament, God said, do these sacrifices. But he says, what I'm finding is people who do these things, these sacrifices, these religious rituals, but their heart is not engaged. He says, that's dangerous. You see, it's an approach to God that essentially says this. I'm doing these things. I'm jumping through the hoops. I'm doing the things, God, that you told me to do. So now you are obligated to make my life better, to give me what I pray for, to give me what I ask, to make me more comfortable. And what Paul says is that kills the life of the Spirit. When we live that way, when we come and approach him, he says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is living by the letter, looking for the rules and following the rules, trying to use God to get what we want, to give us what we want so we can have a happy life. The commentator John Oswalt describes it this way. From the outset of the book of Isaiah and up to its very end, the central problem it has identified in the human race as that of self-exaltation. We try to solve the basic problem of our extreme fragility, both physically and psychologically, by lifting ourselves up in order to gain power. For it's by means of power that we can protect ourselves and ensure the satisfaction of whatever we consider our needs to be. When all is said and done, this is what ritualistic religion is about the religious elite discover how to manipulate divine power. But in fact, that approach is all wrong. In this universe, 
God alone is exalted. And any attempt by humans to exalt themselves and usurp God's power for themselves is doomed to fail. But living a legalistic life, a ritualistic life where we depend on rule-keeping and then expect God to come through means we, we are opposed to God's plan. We're not living in our weakness, letting God live through us. We are dictating to God. And what it does, ultimately, is it drives people away from Christianity. Living this way, empty religion, alienates outsiders because they look and they say, well, Christianity is all about just right behavior, and they don't see Jesus in us. And in verse 5, then, it says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, the ones he anoints with his spirit. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. What's it saying? That when you're you're religious, living by rules, you, you become judgmental of weak Christians, those who don't have it quite as together as you do. And what's the biggest complaint of the non-Christian world around us of Christians? What's the first thing they always say in the surveys? Christians are judgmental. Well, I guess that suggests that a lot of empty religion has penetrated the church. It's easy for all of us, every one of us, and I've done this too. It's easy for us to get caught up in thinking there are certain rules, certain things we should do to be a good Christian, and then we start looking down on other people who don't do the same thing. And what Isaiah is saying, what God's saying, is that destroys true Christianity more than anything. Who did Jesus have his biggest conflict with on earth? It was those who lived an empty religion. So God says, don't focus on the temple, don't focus on being religious, or it will destroy my plan to bless the world through you. But think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the Jews. The temple was everything, the temple, the temple, the temple. And it was all about keeping the Sabbath and keeping all the rules. They totally missed Isaiah 66. (laughs) Apparently they cut it out of their Bibles or didn't like it. They didn't tremble at his word. And they missed Jesus standing right before them. They missed it so badly that in Acts chapter 7, when the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned, he actually quotes Isaiah 66, verse 1, as he's about to be stoned. And listen to what it says. Isaiah, Acts 7, starting in verse 48, Stephen is speaking to the Jews, and he says, Yet the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, now he quotes Isaiah, 66, one. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then he points the finger at them and says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. He points to the fact that They've held on to the temple. They've held on to empty religion and they've missed Jesus right in front of them. And then right after those words, they stoned Stephen to death. What about us? We, it's easy to point fingers at the Pharisees, right? 
But we can so easily fall into the trap of empty religion, too. There's something about wanting that power, as John Oswald says, that power of feeling like, I'm pulling it off. I'm following the rules. So I have some power over God. He needs to come through for me. We make a list of what makes a good Christian. And, you know, I think we do a pretty good job of it here at Cole, but we talked about this in staff, and as someone mentioned You know, we emphasize the study of God's Word here at Cole. We exposit the Scriptures. We have great Bible studies. We really dig into the Word together. But that in itself can be empty religion if we begin to emphasize that as, I'm a good Christian because I do this. And we can begin to judge others who maybe aren't as educated, don't know the Bible as well, maybe can't even find Isaiah in their Bibles, And we look down on him that way. It's easy to fall into that. But I think the answer for us is to go out of our way to be inclusive of all peoples, to reach out to everyone and see them as brothers and sisters in Christ if they know him. And be careful, be careful not to judge others. We need to have the attitude that I am a fellow struggler with you. Well, now he ends... This passage, the last half of it, is two encouragements because, honestly, if we kind of look at God's plan here, it can be a little scary and overwhelming. He basically has said, okay, I'm purposely keeping you weak (laughs) so that my power can live through you. So life's going to be hard. You're going to be afflicted, and you're going to struggle with being crippled in spirit. Oh, and by the way, those who are religious around you who feel like they have it together are going to reject you. Doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? So God gives us a couple of encouragements here to keep us going and moving forward. And the two encouragements are in 7 through 9 and then 10 through 14. The first encouragement he gives us is that he promises us miraculous impact. As we depend on him, as we rely on him and our weakness, keep going to him, clinging to him. He promises that he will have a miraculous impact through us. Notice what he says again. I want to read verse 7 again. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Notice the metaphor, the analogy that... God uses here that Isaiah uses. Essentially, he says, yeah, you know, you're waiting and the woman's pregnant, about to give birth, and she's, she's about ready to hit labor. She knows it's coming. And then suddenly it's like, wait a minute, the baby's here. <laughs> what happened to the labor? There isn't any. And then down in verse 9, he says, shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God. It's this wonderful metaphor that I think the message is this. God's kingdom expands and life is birthed in the kingdom of God, not through our labor, not through our work and our efforts, but it's miraculously done by God himself. As we depend on him in our weakness, he exhibits life. He births people. People come to Christ. People grow spiritually 
in ways that are beyond our ability to produce any of it. We haven't labored for it. We just get to watch it happen as we depend on him. That's God's encouragement to us. It's not our labor that brings God's life into the world. It's his miraculous birthing. So God is essentially the ultimate midwife, right? He causes the birthing. He does it. And we essentially get to be doulas alongside him. Now, you may not know the word doula. I didn't till a few years ago. But my daughter-in-law, Grace, is a doula. A doula is essentially, and I'll probably mess this up, Grace, but essentially a coach, someone who walks alongside the person who's having the baby and encourages them and blesses them, but she doesn't make it happen. She's not in charge, but she's a great encouragement to the process of birthing. That's what we are. We're essentially doulas. We get to be part of what God's doing and then watch it happen and cheer it on and encourage the process of what God is doing. In other words, God's saying this, depend on me in your weakness. Keep turning to me and keep trembling at my word and doing your best to, to live it out. And you'll get to see me birth all kinds of life in you and around you. In my own spiritual life, I, I, I've seen this to be true. You know, I used to work really hard. Uh, I wanted to grow in Christ, which is good. And there were areas in my life I wanted God to root out, and I would work really hard to try to deal with it. And, and if I failed, I'll never do that again, and I would work hard. And I just saw my labor wasn't producing anything. But as I learned to look more to Jesus and depend on him and, and get to know him better and keep my eyes on him, all of a sudden I began to look back and go, you know, I don't struggle with that particular thing anymore, and God's changing me. And God's doing a work here because it's a miraculous impact. It's his birthing process. It's not ours. God gets the glory then, which is how it should be. And then one last encouragement, verse 10 through 14, abundant provision, miraculous impact. He does it. And then abundant provision. It's a beautiful metaphor he gives us, fairly graphic, actually. In verses 10 and following, as he says this, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And then down in verse 12, at the, near the last half, And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. It's a beautiful metaphor of a mother nursing where a child is utterly content as the mother is meeting every need and, and caring and loving and bouncing the baby on her knee and taking care of her and embracing this baby. And it's by Jerusalem, it says, who is Jerusalem? Well, it's the dwelling place of the people of God. I think in the metaphor, in the analogy, the encouragement of God is this. As we depend on him and learn together to share our lives together, our vulnerability and our weakness, our needs are actually met through the life of Christ in one another, through the body of Christ as we care for one another and we experience God's abundant provision through 
our life together. By being part of the church, by being part of the community of faith, as we use our gifts and love one another, we get fed and loved and cared for as we gather to hear the word, to worship, to share life in small groups, to meet with a friend over coffee, all those ways in which the life of Christ gets released and our needs get abundantly met, not through trying to meet our needs, but simply admitting our weakness and being part of the body of Christ together, caring and loving one another. And in verse 13, it makes clear that, well, it's through the body of Christ, but ultimately God is the one comforting us. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one who meets our needs. So God promises this. This is the encouragement. As we depend on him, he will provide all we need and primarily through being part of the body of Christ. So God's plan to reach the world, I don't know about you, but, you know, I would have never have come up with it. <laughs> it seems a bit crazy to use weak people like us who are afflicted by life, struggle through life. We constantly want life. Lord, I could just serve you so much better if, if, if you'd take away these difficulties in my life. And God says, oh, by the way, that's my plan. It's in the difficulties that my life gets released through you. Through those who are weak or broken people who know they need God and who tremble at my word, who see the awesomeness of God having spoken, having come, and really honor it, reverence it, and obey it. Think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. When Stephen stood up and said those words and was stoned, the Apostle Paul was there. The Apostle Paul was one who lived for the temple. The Apostle Paul was one who lived for ritualistic, empty religion, following the rules. But God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, and he became an advocate for this kind of life. And so much of what he says is about learning to depend on God's life in us. As he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. His whole thinking has been transformed by God's truth. And he says over and over again how God's work, God works in our weakness. We're just clay pots. And in our weakness, God lives his life through us so that the power might be of him and not of us. So the message of Isaiah is this. Don't, don't get caught up in a building or a place or the temple or any of that. That's not my plan. Don't become religious. God doesn't like religion. <laughs> but know that I will produce miraculous impact through you. I will provide for your every need through my abundant provision as you trust me and depend on me. And I just want to close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he says so well about this whole process. Starting in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, weak, vulnerable, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You and I, you and I are the temple. 
today, the place where God dwells on earth. And as we admit our weakness, learn to love and support one another and depend on him, the life of Christ is released and the world around us can see that, yes, God is real and God is here now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that your plan is not like we would have come up with, but thank you for being willing to use us in our weakness. And thank you that your life is revealed as we're willing to admit our need and our weakness with one another in the community and learn to depend on you so that your life can dwell in us and be released through us. Lord, may we let go of empty religion and learn to depend on you in a way that brings all the glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.